All right, let's get into the Bible. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And as you're turning to John 5, um, I'm going to pray and ask God to help us as we study his word. Father, I just pray that you would help uh, us to see what's truly here in this passage. I pray you would help us to see that you, Jesus, are so much better than we can imagine and that you can make us better in ways we can't even imagine. That your spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts. You have prepared each person here and you have prepared this text for them today. And so I pray you would press it on and onto their hearts and in, into their hearts and you would move in their hearts through this pa- passage, through this scripture, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're going to talk about the surprising Jesus this morning. We're going to talk about the surprising Jesus this morning. And here, I just want to get down the, just the bottom line. It's a long passage. We're going to get through the whole thing. We're going to do it pretty efficiently, but I don't want to take a lot of extra time just, you know, making you laugh and telling, or not laugh as the case may be a lot of times with a funny or unfunny story. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line today in John chapter 5. The bottom line. Jesus is better than your best thoughts about him. Jesus is better than your best thoughts about him, and he can make you better in ways you can't even imagine. Jesus is better than your best thoughts about him, and he can make you better in ways you cannot even imagine. We're going to see that this morning in John 5 as Jesus encounters a man who is, is broken down both in, in body and in soul and can make him better. And he offers that same thing to you. And he does this by way, we're going to kind of look at this through three questions. Three questions um, that, that the, the text of John 5 is going to present to us. And this is the first question. This is the first question. Do you want to become well? Do you want to become well? Do you want to get better? Um, so, so let's just let's just get in John five chapter one, ch- chapter five verse one. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after what? Well, after John four, what happened in John four? Jesus met the woman at the well in Samaria. He had this ro- this official come up to him and ask him to heal his son, and he does that. So Jesus do- did these amazing things in John four, and then after this, a Jewish festival. We don't know which one. It's not important. He doesn't tell us because it doesn't matter which festival. Only that this festival was the reason that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem, and that's speaking literally because Jerusalem is at about 3,800 feet elevation. So he went up to Jerusalem for this festival. In Jerusalem, there was a place called the Sheep Gate, and at that Sheep Gate, there was a pool called Bethesda, which has five colonnades. So it's, it's this, this large pool with this a colonnade or a portico would have been like this, this overhang that would have been next to the pool that would have covered people from the elements. And, and so people would have gathered there. This would have been a very common thing in the ancient world in the Greco-Roman context where people would, would gather at these pools. You know, it's like a, a public gathering spot. And at this pool, there are a large number of disabled people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So they're going to this pool. This is where a lot of people would be. But these people specifically are going to this pool because there is this belief that when the pool was stirred up, 
that when, when the waters moved, that if they went into the pool, they would be healed and they'd be made well. And apparently there was a belief that only the first person in would be made well. And one of these people, there's this man who has been there disabled for 38 years. And he, we, don't know, we don't know if this is 38 years um, of age, if he's been sick his whole life, or if he got sick at some point later in life. But whatever the case, he's been sick for 38 years. 38 years is a long time to be sick. A long time to feel broken. And he's sitting by this pool because he has a faint hope that maybe if he gets into the water quickly enough, he'll get better. Um, I don't know what's plaguing you, but there's something plaguing you. There's something plaguing all of us. There's something, and there's physical things, but there are also spiritual things. There are emotional things. Physical illness, mental illness, I don't know what it is plaguing you. I don't know what's been weighing on you, but we're all broken. We're all broken. We're all like this man. Some of us look great on the outside, but we're all broken. We all have stuff in us that besets us, that, 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 that plagues us. It could be sin. It could be sickness, something. I don't know what it is with you that's been weighing you down for many years, but there's something. There's just, that's just the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. This man had been disabled for 38 years, and Jesus sees him lying there and realized he'd already been there a long time. And that's just a beautiful, a beautiful verse. So it's, it's one of those we can kind of skip over. You're reading a story. Jesus saw him, realized he'd already been there a long time. He just kind of, okay, this is kind of like, you know, exposition of the plot. This is how, what's, what's, how the plot is transitioning to the conversation. But notice, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. This was a man people wouldn't have seen. They would have seen him as just part of this crowd of undesirables. This, oh, they're making our nice public pool a mess. Too bad all those folks have to be there, right? That, 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 you know, they, they kind of make things a little less pleasant. They're, they don't look good. They sound funny. They're, they're kind of uncomfortable to be around. But Jesus doesn't see just the crowd. He sees a man. He sees one man. He sees this man. And realize he'd already been there a long time. Jesus sees him, but he doesn't just see him. He knows. He knows the man's situation. The word realize is actually, literally, you could translate it, having known. Having known. And Jesus sees you in whatever it is. You know, he doesn't just see a crowd. He doesn't just see a church. He does see a church. He doesn't just see. He sees you. He sees you as a person, as an individual. He sees you and he knows. He knows exactly what it is that's besetting you. Sin, sickness, whatever it is. Whatever that thing is, 38 years for you. He sees it. He knows it. He says to this man, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And it's an obvious question, but it's not so obvious. Because the reality is, a lot of times... We don't get better because we like the way things are. Not phys obviously physical illness, we want to get better. But sometimes physical illness is caused by bad habits that we don't want to change. Sometimes mental problems, not, not often, but all, not always. But, but sometimes the, 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 the pattern of our thinking is a result of patterns of consumption, of entertainment or different things that shape our mind. Sometimes our problems in life stem from our addictions and our sin 
And when we're honest, we say we want to get better, but we really don't want to get better because we really like what we have. We really like the discomfort and the security of the darkness, and so we stay there. Do you want to get well? Now, you can't see it because this is in English, but this was an originally, John wrote it down in Greek. And the word here for get well, the word get here is actually the, the Greek word for become or to, to become. Do you want to become well? That's why I put it up there. Do you want to become well? And it actually is, if you look at the gospel of John, there's a contrast throughout the gospel between the word become, which is ginemai, and the word be, which is amy. Now, you don't have to remember the Greek words, but just there's a be, become contrast. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was to be the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's being that is God. Ultimately, God is being, the only one who is, without anything around Him needing to feed Him or, or make Him who He is. He just is. He is being itself. And then there is becoming. There are things that are not yet what they could be. And that's the, the, the beautiful reality of what God did for us in sending the Son. The Father sent the Son to become, John 1.14. The Word became flesh. So the glory of God is in His being. He is self-sufficient, abundant life. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. Now, you might take that in, as an offense. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. God does not need you at all. He doesn't need you to make him happy. He doesn't need you to make him fulfilled. He doesn't need to create you. He didn't need you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. You might think, oh, that's, that's, that doesn't sound very happy. But the reality is only a God who doesn't need us is a God who can truly love us. Because otherwise you'd have like a codependent God who is needing to get his fix of something from us and can't truly give generously and graciously to us. The glory of God in his, is in his being. The glory of how he made humanity is, is so different from God that we can become. We can become something we are not currently and not yet. God has made us to become better than we are. We are God is in the business of changing people. God is in the business of taking people who are a certain way and making them something different and something better. So whether it's an addiction or whether it's a, 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 a brokenness in your life in terms of physical illness, whether, whether it's a, a sin issue, whatever it may be that's plaguing you or has plagued you, God is in the business of making people better. Making people better. And he asked this man, do you want to become well? Notice what it says now in verse 7. Sir, the disabled man answered. This is how he's defined. He's the disabled man. He's the disabled man. The, 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 the Greek word is a participle, the disabled one. It's, it's like a, you know, that, that, that's, that's how he's identified. And that's how other people saw him. That's probably how he saw himself. That's how Jesus sees him. That's what's true of him in this moment. And I don't know about you, but there are things in my life that have so become part of my story that I begin to identify myself by them. I begin to identify myself by those things. So maybe like, like for you, maybe it's like, oh, she's the pretty one. Or he's the funny one. Or he's the fat one. Or she's the skinny one. He's the smart one. 
She's the needy one. Whatever, whatever it might be, you're, you have some stuff in your life that has become so part of your story that you begin to identify yourself by it and you, other people begin to identify you by it. The disabled man answered, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So he had this belief that if he got into the water first, somehow he would be healed. He's, this is called superstition. And this is not what the God of the Scripture calls us to. He doesn't call us to superstition. Like if you say the wrong thing in the wrong way or do the wrong thing or cross your feet or do something in the wrong way, that things are going to go poorly for you. We don't have a God of superstition. We have a God who just does great things and invites us to enjoy them. I have no one... Now, what's interesting, literally it says, I have no man to cast me into the water. I have no man to cast me into the water. He's looking for a man to cast him into the water because he's not strong enough to get there on his own. We don't know if he was physically unable to move or if his whatever was wrong with him made him so that he couldn't move as quickly as the other people who were around him. But either way, he's looking for a man who can pick him up and bring him into the water. But he's now in a situation where he's got something better than a man. He's talking to someone who's better than a man. He says, sir, I don't have anyone to put me into the water. And maybe he thinks, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to take me. He's just going to hang out with me. The water's going to get stirred up. And he's going to put me in the water first because he's big and strong. He's young. Jesus is probably like in his early 30s. He's like... He, he, he's expecting Jesus to meet him according to his experience and his expectations. He's expecting Jesus to do for him what he can imagine Jesus might do for him. He's superstitious. We're, we're the same way, aren't we? We're, we're expect, we ask Jesus to do things for us according to our experience, according to our vision of how things could go. And Jesus does things that we just can't even imagine. Jesus does things that that we don't have a category for. Jesus is like 4D chess playing with us. He's making moves and doing things that we don't even think are possible because we're playing a different game than he is. Jesus says, the man says, I don't have anyone to put me into the water. And Jesus, I'm I'm about to rock your world. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Get up. There's three, three commands here. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. This man was looking to Jesus according to his experience and his expectations, but like Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Jesus does far abundantly above anything this man could have asked or imagined. If if Jesus had said, what do you want me to do for you, instead of do you want to get better, the man would have said the same thing he said, will you help me get in the water first? That's what the man thought he needed. What Jesus could do, though, Jesus could heal him with a single word. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He is better. Jesus is better than our best thoughts about him. He is better than your best imagination, your best worshipful moment. Jesus is so much better than you realize. And he says, get up. And he foreshadows John 11, where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he foreshadows his ability to call people out of spiritual death into spiritual life. And he also foreshadows 
his call at the end of time where he will call all of the dead in all of the graves of all of the world and they will reconstitute their physical bodies and they will rise in flesh and those who are in Christ will be separated unto everlasting life and those who are not in Christ unto everlasting judgment. Rise, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And look what it says. Instantly, the man got well. I love how it translates that instantly. That moment, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Jesus was not a halfway miracle worker. You know, like, I, have you ever seen The Princess Bride? Right? And, and it's like, like the, 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 the mostly dead, you know, like this. He, he's, Jesus is not a mostly miracle worker. He's not getting him part of the way there. He's not getting him to, you know, so that he's not on death's door, but he, he's a little better than he was. He's not a marginal healer. Complete and total miraculous healing. A total and complete miracle. The man went from total inability to total ability in human terms with a word from Jesus. And that day was a Sabbath day. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, now it doesn't say whether they knew he'd been healed, whether they were watching, we don't know. All we know is they see the man walking with his mat. So he's had this like little straw mat or whatever it was, and he rolled it up, and he carried, he's carrying it with him, probably on his shoulder. It's probably, you know, probably a little too big to carry under his arm. So he's got it like this, and he's carrying it. And they see him. Now, this, the, Jews, the Jews had put all these regulations in place so that nobody would accidentally violate the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to do work on the Sabbath. No one was allowed to work on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to put out energy on the Sabbath. The only person who was allowed to work on the Sabbath was God. Seventh day, God rested, but then everybody knew and everyone believed that God didn't stop working. It just meant he rested from his creative labor and he moved into his sustaining work. So God is providentially sustaining the world at every moment. And if God stopped doing that, the world would disintegrate. So God's allowed to work because God is God, but none of us are. And so the, 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 these people see this man walking with his mat and they say, hey, you're not allowed to do that. It's the Sabbath. And they don't even realize, like, they're so focused on this, this little detail that's not actually even in the Bible. It's just like an extra thing just to be on the safe side that they take this, they take this man and they miss the fact that Jesus has just done a massive miracle. So I guess people, like, I, you know, in churches, like, sometimes church people are the worst, right? Because you get so, people get so focused on the details and, and like, the the you know, the jots and tittles, and they miss the big thing that Jesus is doing. I've been in situations where you have a big ministry event, and it's like amazing, and hundreds of people hear the gospel, and, and someone's upset that the person who was in charge didn't turn off the AC at the end. It's like, where's the priority here? This is what the, these, these, these folks are totally missing it. And the man says, well, the, the guy who told me to pick up your mat and walk told me to do this. Like, he said, he made me well and told me pick up my mat and walk. And, 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 and so he said, I don't know what you're talking about, but this guy's obviously someone special, and so what he told me to do, I'm going to do. He, he's got a little more credibility in my mind than you because he just did something for me that no one's been able to do for me in 38 years. Now, notice what it says, the man made me well. That means the man performed an action. He worked, that Jesus did work on the Sabbath. He did something on the Sabbath. The Jews, they don't like this. 
Look at what they say in verse 12. Who is the man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped into the, away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, this is how it always works, by the way. We don't find God. God finds us. Jesus doesn't, you don't find Jesus. Jesus finds you. See, you're well. Do you want to become well? You're well. You got what you wanted. But that's not the end of the story. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So he's saying you're well. You're physically well. Your physical body is as as good of health as you could possibly want. But if you continue in sin, something much worse is going to happen to you. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about not physical death or physical disability, but eternal judgment. He's calling him to repent and believe. He's calling him to turn from his sinful way of life and to turn to follow God. He said, yeah, it's great. It's great for you to be healed in your physical body, but what you really need is spiritual resurrection. And in our world, people have lost a sense of the fact that we live in a world that is not just this life. We live in a YOLO world. You only live once. And so people are just trying to be healthy. They're trying to enjoy themselves. They're trying to get what they can. And they're missing the fact that doesn't matter how healthy you are, how strong you are, how good you look, that one day it's all going to come apart. Studies have shown that people who are really physically healthy and people who are not physically healthy don't necessarily live that much longer. The, the length of their lives is not that much different. It's just what happens is people are not in good physical condition. They slowly deteriorate. So like from like age 30 to like 90, it's like kind of like this. And then people who are in really good physical condition, they maintain like peak performance much longer. And then they hit a cliff and they drop. Because at the end of the day, everyone deteriorates and dies. It just happens. That's what sin does to the human body. And if you are only focused on your physical health, then you're going to be in a bad place when you realize that this life isn't all there is. And so Jesus says, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now the man goes and he tells the Jews, oh, it was Jesus who made me well. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he's, he violated the Sabbath. That they care more about Their perceived rule, which wasn't even actually a rule in the Bible, it was like an extra rule, that then they cared about the fact that this person, this brother of Israel, who had been sick for decades, has been made well. That only God could do something like this, but they're so focused on what they think God wants that they're missing what God's actually done. So this is the first question. Do you want to become well? And that's the question... The the text puts to you this morning, do you want to become well? Every 12-step program, they're going to tell you, the first step is what? To admit you have a problem. Do you want to become well? Do you want to bring that to Jesus? Here's the second question. Here's the second question. Jesus, what gives you the right Jesus, what gives you the right? This is what the the Jews are are asking. Jesus, what gives you the right to do this on the Sabbath? It's great you healed him, but couldn't you have waited till tomorrow? 
Jesus responds to them. And this starts one of the longest monologues in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about who he truly is. So the first 16 verses talk about how Jesus can make us better than we could even imagine. And the second two-thirds of the text from verses 17 through 47, 30 verses explain why Jesus is better than you can even imagine. And this is Jesus' answer. What gives him the right? He says, my father is still working and I am working also. So he's saying God still works on the Sabbath because God is God, sustaining all things, and I am working also. Now the Jews, they totally understand what he's saying because they say, it says they were trying to kill him all the more because not only did he break the Sabbath, but now he's calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Not like father in the sense of like God is our father and he adopted us into his family, but God is our fa- his father in the sense that he is equal with the father. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise these things. Now this week, I'm going to do an extra podcast, maybe Facebook Live, on some of the theological implications of this passage. Because uh, uh, St. Augustine, who was a, a pastor and theologian in the late 4th, early 5th century, from like 390 to like 430 AD, so like a long time ago, he preached seven sermons on this passage, Okay. So I'm only going to do one, so I, I need to get s- the rest in somewhere. So if you're interested, that'll be on the website and maybe on, f- on Facebook. We'll send out information about where you can find that. But the, the, the long story short is this. Jesus says, the son is able, not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Then four, he explains what he means or gives the ground for it. For whatever the father does, the like, son likewise does these things. Notice he doesn't say that whatever the father does, that the son does those things after him. That he doesn't say that the, the, the father does something and then the son imitates him. He doesn't say that, that the father does something and, and, then, and then the son like, like does something a little bit later. No, he says whatever the father does, the son does these things likewise. What, what he's saying there is that the work... And the, the activity, the power and, and the activity of the Father and the Son are identical. That whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. He is saying the work of the Father and the work of the Son is the same work. It's not like m- me and my son where like, I'm like, okay, this is what you do. And I show him how to do the thing. And then he's like, oh, like this? And, and he kind of imitates me like an apprentice you know, relationship. No, he says the father and the son do the same things. Whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. The same things at the same time. Well, that doesn't make sense to us because we're people. There's no way for two people to do the exact same thing at the exact same time. The only way for that to happen is for there to be something in God that is different than anything in human experience. And it's because God is a trinity. There's one God in three persons, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Whatever the Father does, the Son sees Him and does these things likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. As Christians, we don't believe in God. We don't believe in God generically. 
We believe in a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. We don't believe in a generic force or power out there called God, kind of like orchestrating all things. We, we believe in a Father who has eternally begotten a Son, who have together eternally spirated or given life to the Spirit in an eternal communion of fellowship called the Trinity. We believe in a, a God who is personal. There's not like, there's not like, there's a book on the back book table called Delighting in the Trinity that you should all read. And, and in that book, the author Michael Reeves says, at the behind everything in this world, there's not a generic force called God. There is only a father giving life and love to his son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There is a trinity, and that's why God is a personal God. That's why he created us as personal people. That's why he created the family. That's why he created the world the way it is, because that's the type, type of God that he is. The father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Greater works than what? Than healing. What's that? What's greater than healing? Resurrection. He's going to give him the power of resurrection. He's going to show the power of resurrection. When is he going to do that? In John chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lord willing, we'll be in that uh, passage on Easter. I've tried to plan it out so we'd be there on Easter. He's going to give him the power of resurrection and show the power of resurrection in Lazarus. He's going to show the power of resurrection in spiritual regeneration of people who were dead in sin and raise them up to life spiritually in Christ so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. So the Father and the Son, they have the same power. They have the same work. They have the same will, whoever He wants or wills. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that's an amazing thing. God's judgment has been entrusted. The Father's judgment has been entrusted to the Son. What does that mean? It means God and the Son have the same power, the same work, the same will, and the same judgment. That the Son does what only God can do because the Son is God with the Father eternally, equally. So that all people may honor, look at this, Honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus is like, what gives me the right? You have no idea who I am. You have no idea who I am. I'm not just some miracle worker. I'm not just some person who can do some good things. I am the Son of the Father, eternally God. Same power, same work, same will, same judgment, same honor, same glory. I am God here. The man... By the pool, wanted a man to put him in the pool, but he got so much more than a man. What did he get? He got the God-man, Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you want to know God, if you want to glorify God, if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to go through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is God the Son in human form, in human flesh. He continues in verse 25 and following. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears, this is 26 through 30, but 25 through 30. Um, Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What's he, what's he claiming there? Well, who's the only one who can call forth life with a word? In the beginning 
God said, let there be light. What, what? And he says, how can the Son have this kind of power? For, this is verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now that's an incredible statement. For how can the Father who has life in himself, that's what it means to be God, life in himself. That self-sufficient, self-sustaining, abundant life. He doesn't need life from anywhere else. We all depend on life. We need our parents to give us life. When mom and dad got together, you know, and all that happens. And, and you get life from your parents. And then you need life to be sustained. You need your mom and dad to feed you. And then you grow up and you think, I'm self-supporting and self-sustaining. Except you need whoever's paying you to pay you so you can buy food. And you have to put the food in your mouth. And then if by some chance something happens to you where you can't feed yourself, someone else has to feed you because you are a dependent being. You do not sustain life in yourself. You are dependent on all sorts of things for your life. God is different. God has life in himself. He is self-generating life. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone. But notice it says the Father granted to the Son to have life in himself. Well, that, that just doesn't that, that we have no category for that in human experience. Because if you have life, how can you be given life in yourself? How can you be granted self-sufficient life? And the only, the only way to explain this, theologians have wrestled with this for thousands of years, is to say that somehow the Father eternally begot a son of his own essence, who is the same God, but a different person. The only way to explain this verse is by the doctrine of the Trinity. And he granted the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the, the, the Son has authority as God to judge, and he has the authority as a human to judge. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's Jesus getting at here? He's getting at the mystery at the heart of all of the universe, all of everything, and that is who God actually is. Jesus is better than your best thought about him. He is God the Son. He is better than this paralyzed man's best thought about him. He's better than your best thought about him and he can do for you what you can't even imagine beyond your experience or your expectation that's what gives him the right the third question jesus how can we know you're telling the truth how can we know you're telling the truth that's great to say all this but jesus how do we know you're telling the truth this is what the jews must have been thinking as he's saying all this and they're like what what, what is he talking about? How can we know he's telling the truth? Well, Jesus anticipates this objection. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, of course, his testimony is true. But he's speaking to their skepticism and their limitation. And you say, how, how do, how? he says, okay, so I told you all this amazing stuff, most deep theology in like the whole Bible, some of it. And, and how do you know I'm telling the truth? Well, I have witnesses. I have witnesses. There's another who testifies me about testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. So who testifies to Jesus? 
Jesus has three witnesses. Jesus has three witnesses. He doesn't just have one witness or two witnesses. He has three witnesses. In Jewish law, everything had to be confirmed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is like, even under your own law, I have credibility. John testified about me. He testified about the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Even in this, even in this, these, these guys are pressing on Jesus questioning his credibility, trying to kill him, and still his heart is for them to be saved. Still his heart. Father, what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. This is heart for you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, his heart for you is that you would be saved. I didn't want to kick that, but... John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So he's saying, you believe John for a while until it became inconvenient, until it cost you something. You rejoiced for a while in his light, but then, then, then when it got uncomfortable, you, you, you gave up. And this, this is the parable of the soils, right? That some, some people, they receive the word and they, 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 they express faith in Christ, but then when things get hard, when it costs them something, they give up. And this is what he's saying. You believe John for a while, he testifies about me, but that's not the only witness I have. He says, I have another witness. I have another witness. I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So his first witness is John. His second witness is the works he has that have been given to him by the Father as the eternal Son. The Father has given him works to do, and the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. The Father testifies about me. I have John's testimony, but I don't need his testimony. John's just a dude. But God the Father testifies about me. And the reason you know he testifies about me is because I do things only God can do because I am God, the Son. You have heard his voice. You, oh, excuse me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his re- word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Now, this is a... This is a really, really provocative thing he's telling them. Because this was, these were the Jews. These were the people who had the oracles of God that had been re- received the, 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 the word of God and the revelation of God from Moses, who had received it directly from God on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. And they, they were the only people in the whole world who had the true word of God. But he says, you don't have the word. You don't have the word because you don't believe the one the Father sent. So, so the works of the Father testify about him. John testifies. The works of the Father testifies. And then third, the Scriptures, the Word of God testifies. You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. I've been like beating the horse of Bible reading, right? It's like all I'm talking about the last few weeks because I want you to read your Bible. That's why we're giving you these scripture journals, because I want you to read your Bible and engage the Bible, because if you do, it will change your life, unless you do it and your heart's not in it, unless you do it and you miss what's actually there. Because the reality is lots of people have studied the Bible for a long time and been dead in their sin, because the point of the Bible is Jesus, and the message of the Bible is to believe 
in Jesus, to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ, to follow him. And so if you get information, you're like, oh, I never saw that. Pastor Danny said this and this and this. All that cool little tidbits. That's not, you're missing the point. If you walk away and you got a page full of notes, you're like, I actually was good at church this week. I didn't do my grocery. I keep talking about the grocery list, right? But I didn't do my grocery list. I took really good notes. Look at all this stuff I learned. It's worthless if you miss Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you miss it all. You miss the point. You're not willing to come to me so that you have life, he tells them. I don't accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. Now, there are two things the Jews loved. They loved God and they loved the Bible. They loved the scripture and they loved Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the creator. And he's saying, no, you don't love either. You have no love of God and you have no love of the scripture because you missed it because you missed me. I have come in the Father's name and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. Oh my goodness, I could preach a whole sermon on this, just a sentence. Because everybody's all about the name of Trump or Sanders or Biden. They come in their own name and they come and people are like, oh, this is what's going to fix it for America. This is what's going to do it. This is what I say. We are going to find salvation in this name. Obama 08, Romney 12, right? I don't go back that far. Bush Cheney 2000. Clinton Gore, 92, right? All these people coming in their own name, people trying to find salvation because they have nothing bigger to hope in, and people accept it. Why? It's human nature to accept people's testimony who seem to talk a good game. He says, if someone comes in his own name, you'll accept him. You hear his podcast, or you watch his YouTube channel, or you read the book, credibility. How can you believe since you accept glory from another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's saying the reason you believe in the name of people who come in their own name is because they make you feel glorious in yourself instead of seeking the glory that is only God's. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? We're so addicted to what people think about us and people accepting us. But we should be seeking the glory that comes from the only God. Do not, he says, think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses. He's saying, you think you trust Moses? You think, you, a lot of these guys, they had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized in Hebrew. Okay? So they're like, that's like big time. Right? Most of us haven't even read Leviticus. They had it memorized. And he's saying, Moses, who you memorized, you know it backwards, forwards, and upside down, but you missed it, and he's going to accuse you on the last day because you didn't believe in me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. If you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, I got witnesses. I got proof, and you're missing it. Jesus is better than your best thought about him, and he can make you better in ways you can't even imagine. You just have to believe it. There's a story. I've got a picture here. 
Anyone know what this is? This is the 1913 Liberty Head Nickel. It is one of only five of these known in the whole world. They were never officially minted. There are five of them that were minted. They are not authorized by the, by the federal treasury. And there are five. Well, recently, there was an account of four of the five. Um, there was a Hawaii 5 episode in 1973 called the $100,000 coin or the $100,000 nickel that talked about one of these. Well, they knew where four of them were, but they didn't know where the fifth one was. Turns out that a man... Now, I, don't, I should have memorized the story, but I don't remember. So This man named George Walton was a coin collector, paid $3,750 back in the 30s or 40s, which would have been about 50 grand in today's money, to buy the fifth Liberty Head nickel. In 1962, George Walton was killed in a car wreck, and his coin collection was taken in by his family. And at that time, the nickel that he had was proven by an expert to be inauthentic. So they just had it back in a case in a closet somewhere. They took it in. They had it reappraised. They took the nickel and they compared it to the other four. And they determined that this was, in fact, the fifth missing Liberty Head, 1913 Liberty Head nickel. And it sold at auction a few years later for $3.7 million. And it was in their closet the whole time. You, got, you, you, know, you have Jesus right here. Don't miss the treasure. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you open our hearts up to see the glory of your face in the face of Jesus Christ. Make us believe that you, Jesus, are better than our best thoughts about you and that you can make us better in ways we can't even imagine. We will turn from our sin and trust in you for forgiveness. You will forgive us and you will give us new life. I ask, Lord, that you would reach in the hearts of every person here and do what I could never do with an interesting story or persuasive speech, but you can change their heart because you are in the business of making people become something that they're not. And I just ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.